Our time in the Word of God has been rich in Galatians 3, so I'd invite you to turn back there again this morning. And I'm going to read our passage beginning at verse 23. I'm going to be covering verses 26 through 29 in a deeper way. Let me begin in verse 23 through the end of the chapter. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to promise. In recent days, there's been much made of something that I really don't care to ingest or think about a whole lot at all, but our culture does. In recent days, there's been media drama about the newly engaged Prince Henry of Wales, or Prince Harry, son of Charles and late Diana and Meghan Markle, an actress from Los Angeles who was a model and who grew up on a Hollywood sitcom show set. I readily admit I don't really care a whole lot about this story, but it, uh, it's in our news and it's a royal wedding that's coming and a lot of people care about this kind of storyline because it transports people into a fairy tale, a mindset that's different than the daily grind of life. It's a royal wedding, much like 2011, Prince William who's Prince Harry's older brother, heir to the thrones of the 16 Commonwealth realms who married Kate Middleton of Buckleberry in Berkshire. Their wedding, known as the People's Wedding, highlighted Kate inviting her fellow town's people from uh, Buckleberry who attended and they came as uh, her guest. Village postman came, the local pub owner came, the shoekeeper and his wife came. So the sentiments create like these create that kind of fairy tale I guess experience I probably won't watch uh, the wedding or and I didn't watch that one but um, but a lot of people do because uh, like Harry and Megan's engagement uh, Megan's coming out of a background where she was kind of in one phase of life from Los Angeles an American marrying someone who's British marrying into royalty And the suddenness of this kind of is somewhat captivating. She comes, you know, as a a gal who's an interracial race, raised in Hollywood. She went through a divorce. Um, And I don't make light of these things, these struggles in her life. But coming out of that background, suddenly marrying into the royal family is kind of Cinderella-like as far as a transformation. Kate, Kate, um, who married... Um, Prince, help me, 
Yes, okay. Married him. That's how much I care about this. Became the Duchess of Cambridge. And then Megan, her story's a little different, and she'll in- inherit the role as a princess. Well, all of that, it creates a good laugh for us and chuckle. It is interesting, and I know some of you will enjoy it. And I know that these are real people in their lifetime dealing with real struggles that won't go away once they get married and once they're transported into this um, new public role. They don't magically go away into happily ever after, do they? At the same time, Christians do have some connection to this storyline in a deeper and more meaningful way because for a Christian, as you've become born again, you are suddenly, in an instant, in one particular day, transported from who you once were with all of your struggles, with all of your crises, with all of your tarnished background, with all of your sins, with all of your failures, with all of your life's disappointments, with all of your identity struggle where you're trying to say, who am I in this life in the 21st century? What is my purpose for life? What story am I a part of? All of that is answered through the sudden transformation that takes place in the heart when you are converted into Christ's kingdom. For when you are converted into Christ's kingdom, you are part of the king. You are owned and possessed by the king as royalty, as heirs to a throne and a kingdom that will have no end a kingdom that cannot be shaken hebrews 12 28 a better country that is a heavenly one and though life is hard now and though you have to embrace being an heir to the throne of grace by faith you can have convictional knowledge you can have hope that you are royalty as a believer in jesus christ galatians begs the question who am I? At least our text this morning does. Who am I? And I want the testimony of Galatians 3, the end of this chapter, to answer this question. The identity of being a Christian is bound up in the promises before us in verses 26 through 29. What does it mean to be part of Christ's kingdom? And I'm using an Englishman's Uh, outlined this morning, the late John Stott really opened this text up to me, so I'm going to quote him throughout. He was a great man, single man his whole life, theologian, just gave himself to the word of God as an expositor, died uh, at a ripe old age, and uh, he left us great treasure here that I'm going to work with this morning. So what are we in Christ? Number one, in Christ we are sons of God. In Christ, we are sons of God. Look at verse 24 again. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, this, the, the new covenant with the, the clarity of Christ that we are to place our faith in him, we are no longer under a guardian, being the law, for in Christ Jesus You are all sons of God through faith. These verses that are before us, verses 26 through 29 in particular, are full of Christ. These are Christological verses. These are full of the person, Jesus Christ. 
Christ is repeated five times in very active and personal ways in these verses. Prepositions like in Christ, being into, put into Christ, putting on Christ are here. And all of these prepositional phrases, all of these references to Christ are in contrast to being under an oppressive system of being under the law. A law that was given by God in the Mosaic Covenant, to be a guardian, to be a stopgap measure, in one sense, to control the sin problem that was in our world. And in particular, in particular it was applied to Israel. To not only control and stem the tide of sin, but also to expose it. And even as we learned last week, to exacerbate, exacerbate it or to make it ooze out like an infection so that we could deal with it through the ceremonial law. But, but that was a tutor. That was a governess. That was a, a way to just keep you know, ill-behaved children under control for a time. But now there's a transition. And the transition has come for us as the church where Jew and Gentile are brought together in Christ where we can know him by faith and we can obey him from the heart by faith. The law was given to show that we couldn't keep the law. And the law is an example of the wrong way to try to get to God. You don't get to God through obedience. You get to God through faith. It's such an incredible difference to come out from the bridle of the law and come into Christ. The law was a, like keeping people in prison under harsh discipline, and now we are sons of God through faith. It's like a modern day difference between it being in a work environment that's policy driven. And you know what I'm talking about if you've been there. Policy driven day to day on the job is very hard, it's a hard way of life. Stay in bounds, don't cross the line, learn the bylaws, learn your situation. Compared to a relationship-based work environment, we are doing things not out of fear, but out of love, out of support, out of a loving obedience, out of a joy of accomplishment. Al Mohler, who's the president of Southern Seminary, he wrote a book on leadership called Conviction, The Conviction to Lead, which counsels that when at all possible to enact change in an organization by all means do it through relationships do it through relationships and not through policy only when relationships break down will you have to go to the policy book to resort to that as a backstop christians are sons who grow through their relationship with christ and you know what that's like you don't serve a god who's heavy-handed in your life who's trying to enforce a policy book you serve the lord whom you love not biblical bylaws but personal knowledge of the lord jesus that comes to you in your heart through the conviction of the word of god as the spirit of god is revealing christ to you you want to be like him you want to love him you want to serve him and you want to obey him in that regard that's new covenant new testament christianity you become a son of God through faith. In the um, Greco-Roman uh, culture, there was something called the toga virilis. And this could be a reference to that where you see in the text, for as many of you, verse 27, 
were baptized into Christ, now skip to the end, have put on Christ. This idea that a young boy who would turn 15 would get this regal toga to put on as a symbol of young manhood. You are now a son. You are a young man, an heir to the throne in God's kingdom. It's the garment of respect. The garment of transition is placed on you. You are putting on Jesus Christ. Now skip back to the word baptized in verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized. What does he mean baptized here? Is he talking about physical baptism or spiritual baptism? Or is he talking about both? The word baptized baptized means to immerse, to fully submerge. Jesus was baptized because he went into the water. It's the picture of being plunged into Christ. We've been baptized into him. But in what sense? A lot of scholars will take this literally, just sort of thinking through New Testament times. When you professed Christ, that was to put your life on the line. It was a very hostile environment then and there. And there are hostile environments around the world where if you say, I'm with Christ, then you could be killed. I read something and there's all kinds of either true or perhaps uh, fallacious reports about martyrs in the world, but I have no reason not to believe it's true. Someone who was recently martyred for singing Amazing Grace out loud in a country, in a culture, and was, was martyred by a cult group somewhere. And, and, and that happens today. Well, it happened then. And so if you were a professing Christian who would publicly be baptized, you were putting your life on the line. And so to profess faith in Christ was synonymous to the act of being baptized. You're professing faith from the heart, and so you are baptized, and you're in, and you're known as a believer. And so some people believe that that's what this is talking about. But I think, though, this symbolizes conversion— the physical act of baptism, it's broader than that. It's talking about the spiritual act of being immersed into Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And it's identifying our new position in Christ. We're immersed into Christ and our position has changed. It's as dramatic as being submerged in terms of the spiritual transformation in your life. Romans 6 describes it this way. Paul is talking along the same lines, verses Three through six. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So there's a sense in which, you know, we're in time and space beyond Christ's death, but when you were saved, your conversion puts you spiritually back on the cross with Christ. You were baptized into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in resurrection like this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. This is talking about how spiritually we were on the cross with Christ in his mind, just as we are seated right now in God's mind at the right hand of the Father. God who transcends time and space sees us as dead with Christ on the cross, as buried with Christ and risen 
with Christ on the third day. We are raised to walk in newness of life. We are empowered spiritually with a new disposition to walk the resurrection life as conquerors, as victors, as those who are no longer suppressed by the law and suppressed and enslaved by our sin. We have a choice to make as believers now to repent and believe, to walk the Christian steps of repentance and faith throughout our lifetime. It's a central theme of this text is our union with Christ. We are united in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. We are his. We are possessed by Christ. We are loved by Christ. You are Christ's sons and daughters. All this was captured very beautifully and poetically. It's a a Catholic poem, but theologically, I have no problem with this poem and the sense of where it's going. It's an Irish prayer. Listen, As I arise today, may the strength of God pilot me, the power of God uphold me, the wisdom of God guide me. May the eye of God look before me, the ear of God hear me, the word of God speak for me. May the hand of God protect me, the way of God lie before me, the shield of God defend me, the host of God save me. Listen. May Christ shield me today, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right hand, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit, Christ when I stand, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth, Christ of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me, amen and amen. Our identity is... Christ, to live is Christ. We're not prisoners. We're not awaiting final execution. We're not minors under the restraint of a tutor. We're adopted sons understanding what we are in Christ. Second, verse 28. In Christ, we are all one. In Christ, we are all one. Let me begin with verse... 28 and just say that the language here in the English Standard Version doesn't do justice to how dogmatically demanding Paul is regarding the point that he is making. Listen, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. The word neither here is there cannot be. This cannot be. That's his tone. It is irrational, illogical. It is contrary to Christ. It is contrary to the church to make categorical divisions in the church. There is neither. There cannot be Jew. And then three negatives follow. Neither or nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. It's very dogmatic with the nor neither and nose of this text it's very very negative on the idea that we are divided by categories such as race or rank or sex or gender those things are not on the forefront of our thinking as we are to interact with each other in the body of christ in fact at the end of verse 28 it says For you are all one in Christ. The word all is at the front of that phrase. All of you are one in Christ. No matter your rank, no matter your race, no matter your sex, you are all one in Christ. 
We're unified. We're, our union is with Christ. Our union is with each other. Listen to this quote from John Stott. I loved it. In Christ, we belong not only to God as his sons, but to each other as brothers and sisters. We not only belong to Christ, we belong to each other. You belong to one another. This kind of belonging, it renders of no account the things which normally distinguish us, which normally we wear in terms of how we relate to each other. We wear these things, whether race, rank, or being male, being female, we wear these things as what makes us who we are. You know, we are this, therefore I am, you know. Some of you um, media giants, I text or I post, therefore I am, right? I mean, we find identity in all kinds of things. But Paul is deconstructing these as being what should be on the forefront of our thinking when we interact with each other. First of all, race. It ties back to what was going on in the Galatian churches, and we've talked about this. The Gentile churches that were established in the lower part of Asia Minor, these are the churches he's addressing. These are interracial churches. These are churches that were born out of the Jewish synagogue, but in Gentile-dominant regions, Romanized regions. And these churches were having to interrelate interracially with each other. And so Paul has broken ground with Paul and Barnabas, and it, it became such a big deal that ultimately Jerusalem had to adjudicate for how Jew and Gentile would relate with each other. Peter, James, and John, they're all weighing in with Paul, with Barnabas, trying to figure this out. You have the Antioch church, which is becoming the fast premier new church and the new mothership and sending agency of the first and second and third missionary journeys. They're more of a Gentile region, and so they're having to figure out what it meant that false teachers were coming in trying to enforce law back onto churches to figure out how the races can coexist. That's what was going on. How are we going to figure out this church that's a Gentile church and a Jew church? How do we put that together? Well, let's go back to the law of Moses and circumcise all the men so that they can all be Jews first before they're Christians. Let's do that. And as we found, that kind of oppression, that kind of pressure obscures the gospel. It segregates people. It makes people be disgusted and, and to be turned off by the gospel because that's not the gospel. And it was hurting people. Paul, in essence, was saying this forced legalism and this heavy burden had to go away. And he found clarity, as we found last week, in the Abrahamic covenant that all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. You remember that? Uh, Genesis twelve three. In you, in Abraham, the promise is fulfilled because he believed. And because of that, and you tie that to the book of Revelation and the throne room scene, scene, every tribe, nation, tongue, and people will be gathered around the throne of Christ. All that beauty and coloration of the races, all of those different colors of skin, all of those backgrounds, all of the beauty of the kaleidoscope of God's creation is surrounding the throne in bowed worship. Are they focused on race at that point? No, the beauty of that is found around the throne. They're focused on Christ. That's the church. That's the beauty of the church. There's no superiority complex or complex or shouldn't be in the church. And Paul is attempting to dismantle this 
bigotry to obliterate a superiority complex saying to the Jew listen you're no better than a Gentile and to the Gentile don't feel inferior to the Jew the test case for this at the Jerusalem Council was um, Titus who was brought by Paul at the end of the missionary journey he shows up with Titus who's a Greek and he's introducing them in a smaller council If you tie together Galatians 2 with uh, the Jerusalem Council as mentioned in Acts 15, you you find that that Titus is thought through by Peter, James, and John. You see that in verse 2. After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And then you skip verse 3, skip down. But even Titus, who was with me, listen, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. It's breaking through the social ranking and caste system here. Race was a real and powerful and personal human cultural phenomenon. It was then and it is now today as we know. But race, listen, makes no determination about someone's spirituality whatsoever. Makes no determination about how spiritual somebody is or isn't whatsoever. It's nothing to do with anything. One of the greatest joys I had in seminary in Los Angeles, which is very multicultural like Anchorage, is that we had people from all over the world studying seminary. And I was very humbled by these men who were there. One in particular I remember, his name was Moses. And I don't remember exactly where he was from. I think he was from China. But that man could barely speak English. And so he's learning English as he's learning Greek and Hebrew all at the same time, and he barely slept. So whenever we were in our discipleship lab time, the professor who was leading that time would allow him to sleep as he taught. So he's teaching, and this person's snoring you know, in, in a nice lulling cadence at 6 a.m. while we're in discipleship lab. But just the beauty of the, the effort that was made as we all were gathering together, trying to figure it out together. Um, Never left me. That was an incredible influence. Well, the second thing we want to talk about is rank. There was neither slave nor free. Verse 28, slave nor free. Most cultures have some sort of caste system, but um, Paul here, interestingly, does not outright condemn slavery that's not the point of what he's saying here the gospel had the hammer-like influence on slavery against slavery and ultimately it became the nail that punctured the ship and sunk slavery the gospel did but paul is advising believers to get along with each other whether you are a slave at church or you are free at church don't look down on each other in terms of your occupation of life It's interesting that often Paul would say to slaves, have a servant heart, no matter if your master is unruly or mean or not, and to masters, to be kind to your slaves. And at the same time, in 1 Corinthians 7.21, he said, seek freedom from slavery where possible. So he, he was for that. And then as we've covered in recent months, the story of Philemon, you remember Onesimus, who was the runaway slave, comes back. And the point isn't, for Philemon to emancipate Onesimus, that's not prescribed directly in Scripture, as much as to esteem Onesimus as a brother in Christ. Whatever you do in terms of the rank system there, or the dynamic there, 
Don't hold his sin against him because he's been forgiven in the gospel. Be reconciled as brothers in Christ. In fact, by Paul holding master and slave still as categories within what he was doing with Philemon and Onesimus, it makes their union, their equality spiritually, them being co-equal heirs, all the more beautifully powerful. Colossians 3.11 is very similar in its phrasing to this uh, verse that we're looking at, verse 28. Colossians 3.11 says, he, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. The reason I bring this for, um, text up is it's a little bit more specific in the categories. You have barbarians and Scythians. Who are the Scythians? The Scythians are always interesting to me. We, can, we kind of have a word picture in our mind of what a barbarian would look like. We'll just ramp that up by three. A Scythian was far worse than a barbarian in this culture. Um, this gives the personal dimension. Scythians had migrated from Ethiopia to dominate the Fertile Crescent in the 17th century BC. They were savages who were taking over, fighting the barbarians. They were known for their unrefinement and savagery. And Josephus, the historian back then, said they were a little better than wild animals. Well, when a Scythian or Chewbacca got saved, right? Um, you, you treat them as an equal, and a barbarian is having table fellowship with a Scythian. Uh, yeah, can you pass that leg of lamb over, you know, whatever? And they're getting along. And they're one in Christ. Barbarians and Scythians are having fellowship together. Anything less than this in the body of Christ, let me just say this, is Christian snobbery, is wrong, is not permitted, uh, taints and tarnishes the beauty of our worship and fellowship together. As you sang together, uh, you, you did well. I enjoyed it. We need to sing louder. I, I just have to say, I'm sitting a little bit farther back, and I'm with you, and I love it. But I want to challenge all of us, in the name of Christ and the gospel, in the name of our unity, drop your guard, sing out, sing loudly, because we're enjoying our oneness, our unity in Christ, we should thank God when we are seated next to someone that makes us feel uncomfortable because of race, rank, or, or gender. We should thank God when we are seated at a table where we're having to engage someone that's not like us, that we wouldn't normally talk to. Because what you'll find is that you break through barriers and then suddenly in the eyes of that fellow Christian, you see Christ staring back at you and the joy of fellowship ensues with unlikely joy, unlikely providence, and unlikely love. Well, sex and gender, let's talk about this one. This is the most um, sort of sensitive topic in our church culture. Today it's controversial. A phrase like, there is no male and female, has been grabbed by liberalism, even within the church, to just say, well, um, all bets are off. I guess Paul, he was a chauvinist when you talk about headship and submission in the home and things like that, and about Paul being um, saying that men are to be the pastors and leaders of the church. But all this uh, wrong is righted with this verse where there's neither male nor female. So I guess all bets are off, and there is no distinction in roles and how we function in the home or in the church. Well, first of all, let me just say that in Genesis 1.27, we find the root, the root system of where Paul is coming from in Galatians 3, 28. Galatians 1, 27. So God created man 
in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What is the image of God? The image of God means that you as human beings, male and female, think. Now, I have a couple dogs, and uh, they act like they think, and they are emotional, and they like their bellies rubbed, and they'll grab food out of your hand, and they'll lick you. But really, they're just animals. They're beautiful. We enjoy them, but they're animals. We are not animals. We are thinkers. We are conceptual. We are those who are thinking about tomorrow. We're thinking about today. We're thinking about the past. We're, we're thinking broadly. We're thinking spiritually. We are worshipers of God or worshipers of self and creation. We are made to be worshipers. So you're either a pagan worshiper or a Christian worshiper. That's what I meant. We're eternal. Every human person will live forever. Their flesh may die, but their spirit will live in heaven or in hell forever. So when God said, be fruitful and multiply in Genesis 1, 28, he was saying for men and women to multiply more babies that are men and women with eternal souls. God is the one who places eternity in the hearts of each individual. He is the one who creates them in the image of God, but we are the progenitor of that And we are the ones who are perpetuating that of men and women who are eternal souls who will last forever. That's the significance of God creating man and God creating woman. It's very, very powerful. It's not something to be trifled with. There are generations of abuse that have pushed people to act in certain ways. Women have gone forward in what's called feminism based on all of the misogyny that they've endured, the sins of chauvinism, the sins of dehumanization, not having rights, not being respected as women who are made in the image of God. Think about it. That disrespect of women being made in the image of God is a temptation, is a catalyst for the sins of uh, feminization where women have rightfully sought for their dignity but at points tipped the scales and what has become upside down where women have obscured the god-purposed beauty that god has created them to be and you see this in the culture of androgyny that we see um, highlighted in teenage movies and all through the media the androgynous culture living in the monochromatic unemotive life where Masculine femininity, masculinity and femininity are obscured and combined and confused. Men, though, have not trended any better. They've trended into passivity. Men have abdicated their God-given role to, listen, lead and to provide, especially in terms of Christ-like leadership. Men have become passive and effeminate or aggressive and angry and oppressive or everything and all and everything in between the bible calls you men to do this listen men you are to be strong you are to be tough you are to be a leader and you are to be a provider you are to be a servant of all you are to be a humble person like christ who's willing to sacrifice and do any task that's menial that's a task of servitude a task of washing the feet of your wife or washing other people's feet within the body of Christ. We're called to be tough and we are at the same time called to be tender. Sadly, in our culture, a string of sex scandals has come out, right? The lid has come off, whether athletes who are being benched or suspended, 
whether media personalities like we know of, politicians, there are scandals that are coming out all over the place. And primarily, if you were to look categorically at what gender the scandal is coming back to, it's which? It's men. It's men. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, and be strong. It's a biblical balance of living in faith and having a faith that's based in, or a strength that's based in faith. So the phrase, there is no male or female, it doesn't take away from the distinction of sex, just like uh, that there is neither Jew nor Greek takes anything away from a person's race. We're supposed to treat men like men and women like women with honor and respect in both arenas. Man should not believe that his gender grants him any more discernment than a woman. And a woman should be willing to accept that she can be as discerning as a man. There are many women who say, well, I'm just going to check out and not think. I love John Piper's um, designation of biblical femininity. Women need to have heads full of theology and backbones of steel. They do. They do. That's biblical womanhood. But at the same time, the woman is not meant to be the preacher or elder in a church. So does this mean that a woman is less essentially spiritual than a man? Not at all. Not at all. We're talking about the beauty of a dance in leadership and following. It's coalescing together in biblical unity and harmony within the body of Christ. It's no different than what is displayed for us in the Trinity or the Godhead. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit co-equal, co-eternal, co-essential, all three persons equally one God, and yet you have roles of the Father and the Son in a submissive role and the Spirit of God highlighting the glory of the Son. That's inter-Trinitarian fellowship. That is God, and that is displayed in marriage. It should be displayed in our church. It should be displayed even within our culture of biblical masculinity and femininity. Look, men, we wouldn't even be here if women hadn't become mothers, right? And we needed our mom, and and motherhood should not be looked down upon. If God gives you that opportunity, that grace, that's a significant glory within the church. Raising children, and if if you're not afforded that opportunity, raise spiritual children. Invest in teenagers. Invest in children's ministry. There is something powerfully redemptive about giving yourself to children. Men as well are to do that. Gender-neutral Bible translations are trying to push out biblical masculinity and femininity. They, in many cultures, uh, the idea of God being father is being neutralized or erased from our Bibles. The idea of calling humankind, mankind, humankind, or anything like that is being erased or sublimated in Scripture, which is undoing the Bible's, listen, authority, the Bible's accountability for who we are. Paul's not trying to say we should be insensitive or colorblind or disrespectful to people, but he is saying that we are in Christ. Listen to this. This is from John Stott. When we say Christ has abolished these three distinctions, we do not mean these distinctions do not exist. Listen, but we do mean that they do not matter in the same way that they did before. 
They don't matter in the same way as they did before. These distinctions take a back seat. We're not to patronize each other. We, we are to have the dimness of our distinctions dim more, darken, and the love of Christ shine brighter as we reach out to each other. Right, here's the third and final um, idea, the third and final point about who we are in Christ. We are in Christ, we are clothed in Christ, we are sons in Christ, we are heirs in Christ, we are one another in Christ, we are each other's in Christ, and we are from Abraham's seed, verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. What does this mean? Paul brings us back to the fact that we belong to Christ. Paul speaks of people who are of Christ, and specifically, you are Christ's. What does he mean by that? He means, listen, you are possessed or owned by Jesus Christ. You say, I don't know who I am. I'm caught up in this monochromatic culture, day to day, in and out, not knowing purpose and meaning. Well, listen, Christ loves you. Christ has placed you within the history of the church. You are in his family, and you are owned by him. And we're not trying to find common ground with each other. We are unified, connected, interdependent with each other. We're to reserve respect for our unity in the body of Christ. And we're to tell each other that we are owned by Jesus Christ. Listen, that's what he said. We, John Stott put it this way. We have seen that in Christ we belong to God and to each other. No longer do we, listen, feel ourselves to be waifs and strays without any significance in history or bits of useless flotsam. I had to look that up. We're not refuse. We're not driftwood drifting on the tide of time. Instead, we find our place, listen, in the unfolding purpose of God. Seems like we are hearing voices from our culture like this or like these. Listen, you are meaningless. Life has no meaning. You have no meaning or purpose. You are adrift at sea. You are unattached. Sound familiar? Instead, you're placed as Abraham's offspring, verse 29, into God's royalty, heirs according to promise. You have all the promise of the gospel. Here's the three-dimensional attachment that you enjoy. In height, you're reconciled to transcendent God. In breadth, you're joined to Christ, united to all other believers throughout the world. In length, You're joined to a long line of believers throughout the course of time. Remember Hebrews 11? We are in an arena with a cloud of witnesses who are like in a stadium who have gone before us. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, the prophets, those who were killed, the unnamed prophets, those who were sawn in two. We are of the disciples, Peter, James, John, Andrew. We are of Christ. We are of the New Testament church. We are of Peter and Paul. We are of the apostles. We are of the martyrs of the early church. 
We are of the church that is international. We feel things when people take stands for Jesus Christ. We up here in one of the most remote places in the world are not unattached. We are not alone. We're converted. We are Christ's. So who are you? You ask yourself, who am I? Listen to this. In Christ, I am a son of God. In Christ, I'm united to all the redeemed people of God, past, present, future. In Christ, I discover my identity. And listen, I love this. In Christ, I find my feet. In Christ, I come home. Are you home? Are you possessed by Christ? Does he possess your heart and your life? I hope so.